CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, March 24, 2022. The headline in my Chicago Sun-Times, my beloved bright one, home delivered every day. Now a joint enterprise with WBEZ. Ooh, that's a hint. That's a hint, ladies and gentlemen as to uh, who I will be talking to. Uh, anyway, here's a headline in the Chicago Sun-Times. Man, don't get me started on this headline. CPS won't make up five school days missed in standoff with CTU. That's just to give you an idea of what's going on in the world today in the city of Chicago. Now, I'm not going to discuss that with my distinguished guests today. Folks, I'm just going to say one thing. Anytime you ever hear a politician declare when the teachers are on strike that every single day in school is important and how sorry and bad they feel for the school children of Chicago that they're being deprived of one day, one day, one hour of all-important school time. I want you to remember that headline. CPS won't make up five school days missed and stand up with CTU. That's because they want to spend the money on other things, ladies and gentlemen. And they also want to make a, a subtle push uh, in the direction of one faction in the ongoing fight to be president of the CTU. But we're not going to be talking about CTU. We're not going to be talking about CPS. We're going to talk about other things with my distinguished guests. And as I always do with distinguished guests, I ask them to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. This is Linda Lutton. Uh, for the last 14 years, I've been at WBEZ um, Radio. And I'm now on a year-long, what I hope is a year-long DIY sabbatical, do-it-yourself sabbatical. So that's my current status. It is uh, Linda Lutton, who is commonly referred to in the Ben Jarofsky Show as the great Linda Lutton. Uh, this is her second appearance on our show. Welcome back, Connor. And um, that's a reference to something long before Linda Lutton's time. No, no, I, I actually am going for the Welcome Back Cotter Award at work, which is an award we have for people who leave and then come back. There's a lot of those people. You get your photograph put up. It's like a whole placard. It's like a poster. It's it's the Welcome Back Cotter Award. It's currently sitting on the desk of a <laughs> very good editor. Very, very happy she came back. Ariel Van Cleve. You don't hear her on the radio, but she's behind a lot of great audio. 
And uh, yeah, I am going for the Welcome Back Cotter Award in just one year. I'm hoping to win Wait, it. time out. Hold on. So do you actually know what Welcome Back Cotter is? Because I know you're much younger than me. So do you actually know? Well, not only that, Jarofsky, I don't know if you remember this, but my mother was a nun. I think I may have said that at one point to you. Uh, she was. She didn't take final vows. Okay. So it wasn't anything like, you know, my mom was a nun. My dad was a priest. No. No, but the house was still pretty strict and there was very severe limitations on on popular culture, really very limited TV. But I was at least aware that there was a TV show called Welcome Back, Cotter. I did know uh, that. Well, uh, well I, I didn't even know. I, I, you probably told me that your mom was a nun and I probably forgot it because there's so much stuff up in my head. I uh, was not aware of that. Uh, but uh, are you old enough to have been able to watch Welcome Back, Cotter, or is it way before your time? I, I it's a 70s show. I watched very little TV. I watched like okay. Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, pretty serious PBS diet. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, all right, we'll, we'll forego uh, my uh, uh, voyages back in time to one of my favorite TV shows, Welcome Back, Cotter. I do, and I also love the song, Welcome Back. All right, uh, Linda Lutton is a great uh, radio reporter, a news reporter. Uh, and uh, features writer, and as I said, the first time she was on the show, uh, she got her start, at least, I don't know if it was literally her start, uh, but one of her first jobs was editing me uh, at the Chicago Reader, and the, and so this is Linda Lutton editing Ben Jarofsky at the Chicago Reader. Everybody listen up. Did you hear that? That's the pencil <laughs> sharpener gag. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that came through. Oh, I think I'll just change this, you know. <laughs> Wait, I, I do have to throw... I was not... Let me edit you for a moment, Ben. I was not editing. I was just proofreading. I was like the lowest rung in the editorial food chain, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I was like 25, had never studied journalism, and someone figured out I could... like I, I did know a lot of grammar and spelling and things like that and knew how to use a dictionary, so they gave me the job. They gave me the job and then turned them on to me. All right, anyway, listen. So, um, yeah, I, I reached out to Linda. I saw on Facebook... Uh, Linda, your message uh, that you were taking, I don't know, in the old days they call it a sabbatical, a leave, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so I said, oh, this is a great time to reach out to Linda, get her thoughts uh, on some of the stories she, uh, she's done over the years. And so I'll just say this, Linda Lutton uh, has has done a lot of uh, news stories in her life, a reporter, a great schools reporter, uh, had, was came on our show at the hideout a couple times as a news reporter. Uh, and a uh, very hard-hitting uh, Chicago journalist. I give her a lot of love and respect. Uh, the last couple of years, you've been the uh, neighborhood beat reporter at WBEZ, which I have a fondness for because many years for the reader, I was the neighborhood beat guy uh, for the reader. And you're taking a break. So before we go into I'm going to annotate some of your three stories I've selected with your assistance, uh, run through them and get a sense of how you do what you do, why you do what you do, what you're looking for when you do it. Uh, but just uh, update people on why you're taking a leave, what you hope to accomplish with it, and when you hope to come back. So take it away, Linda. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm, uh, for people who don't know, I'm married to the muralist artist Hector Duarte, who's been in, based in Pilsen for probably about 35, 30 plus, 35 plus years. Um, and he has a bunch of public art projects uh, on his plate. 
And some of those, the ones commissioned by public bodies, by, by the city of Chicago, for instance, require a crazy amount of, um, like, project management and bureaucracy, basically. Um, currently figuring out how much the paint will weigh that he is going to put on a brick wall. So that is an exercise that no artist should have to do. And uh, it's a, actually a decent project for a journalist to have to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I support our, uh, our, our city protecting its public buildings from its own art commissions. And um, I am going through that task of calculating how much weight Hector Duarte's mural will be adding to, uh, to a brick wall. Um, so, in other words, it, so yeah, it's too much. It's too much weight. The whole wall will fall down. Yeah, or or like my God, if they cancel the commission, I don't know. I'll probably be asking for my job back a lot sooner. Um, so yeah, I'm supporting Hector. Um, also, you know, Hector and I for a long time have talked about maybe writing a children's book where he does the illustrations and I do the the writing or some sort of collaboration there. So that would be a lot of fun. Um, and there's another thing on my plate, which is this, um, this initiative that we helped found with a lot of our neighbors, which is called the Pilsen Housing Cooperative. It's a housing co-op, and you don't see a lot of those forming in the city of Chicago. So this one stands out. We bought our first building um, two years ago, right as the pandemic was starting, six units. And we just last month, yep, last month bought our second six-unit building in Pilsen. There's now 12 members, or there's going to be 12 members of the Pilsen Housing Cooperative, all longtime Pilsen residents threatened by increasing rents here, increasing um, home values, you know, really honestly out of the reach, even for, you know, professionals, even for, you know, sort of two, two teachers, let's say. Um, home prices have gone up so much in Pilsen that it's really become very difficult to buy. And then, you know, um, so we've converted 12 or we're poised to convert. It's, there's some timing issues here, so I'm being careful about how I say this. But basically 12 longtime Pilsen residents at risk of having to move out of the community because of rising rents and rising home prices. Now uh, homeowners building equity. And um, this is also no-profit housing, so it's citizen-created, permanently affordable housing. The share values that we assigned at the at the purchase will remain that way. Um, and so, yeah, I plan to actually give a bunch of time to the Pilsen Housing Cooperative and see if we can continue to expand that and strengthen the, the co-op and, um, and take a lot of calls from other neighborhoods interested in doing something similar all through Chicago. Uh, and, and that's a noble effort. And it sounds like the kind of story uh, that Linda Lutton would be covering uh, as a neighborhood beat reporter. I know it's the kind of story I would have done. I've been all over in the 80s and the 90s when I was doing neighborhood news. But that's a quintessential uh, small story, if you will, that is really like a parable uh, for a larger story, Linda. And you could delve into this a little bit. I always thought neighborhood news stories uh, could talk. You use one small example to tell a larger story about what's happening, what trends are going on in the city of Chicago. To me, that's a classic neighborhood news story. Do you agree with me? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. And let me just say, I mean, Ben, you're so um, generous in your your um, praise and calling out my work. I really appreciate it. 
But honestly, going back, I mean, I think I was like about 20 some years old when I called you and I was like, I like what you do. How do I do that? Um, I, I, I'd never gone to journalism school and I just really wanted to know how to do what you were doing. And uh, yeah, you had your column, which was a reported column, not an opinion column every week called Neighborhood News. And I ended up proofreading that. And and yeah, I do I actually remember you saying, well, I'm not going to be doing this forever. But then you did do it for like 20 more years. <laughs> so, um, and you did it and you were, uh, you were a master actually. When I proposed a neighborhood's beat at WBEZ, I was thinking of this very thing you're talking about where these little things happen. You know, you got somebody can't get, you know, a speed bump removed from their alley and it just, it's like there's some reason the speed hump needs to be removed and they cannot do it or they need a speed hump and they cannot get one, right? Something like that. And you're just like, oh, this is actually a story about how our entire city works or about how this, you know, how the wards work or it's about the relationship between the aldermen and, and constituents or whatever it happens to be about. So, um... So yeah, I thank you for showing me how it's done. I mentioned your column when I proposed it to WBEZ. I said before Jurafsky was more of an, you know, gave a few opinions here and there, um, as you may now be want to do. You used to write a reported news column every week, and that was a lot of words too, Ben. Those were like twelve hundred words, maybe fifteen. Yeah, they were a lot of words, uh, and. Uh, we, we were pretty much in those days free to do what we do. I will say this, uh, Linda loves to tease me. There's a little tease in there, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you noticed that. That Linda Lutt is very subtle in the way she sticks that knife in as she draws that distinction between a reported news story like we do at WPEZ and opinion. <laughs> Everybody's got an opinion. Uh, opinion stories uh, columns are not that bad to write. And uh, By the way, I just want to promote... Uh, uh, Ramana Hussein, a dear friend of the show and a regular, uh, will now be a regular columnist for my beloved Bright One, the Chicago Sun-Times. So uh, shout out to Ramana Hussein, dear friend of the show. All right. Uh, so, Linda, I chose during – and I, I'm, I'm assuming that you will win that uh, Welcome Back Connor Award next year. You'll be back uh, doing uh, – your uh, reporting for Be Easy, your great reporting for Be Easy, unless, of course, you discover just like this total Jones you have for the housing game, and next thing you know, you'll be the housing commissioner of the city of Chicago, uh, and then I'll be writing opinions about you. But uh, I chose... <laughs> I chose... <laughs> uh, stranger things have happened. I chose three. I chose three with your assistance, uh, but I chose three of Linda Lutton, uh, Neighborhood News, for lack of a better word, uh, stories that sort of illustrate. And if there are young journalists out there, you can learn from the masters uh, and uh, just listen to this uh, analysis of it. So uh, two are classic neighborhood news stories. Uh, one earlier on in your beat from 2020, and uh, we'll close with your most recent one, which I do not believe, as I'm speaking, has aired yet on BEZ, but by the time this show drops, it will have aired, so everybody can go check it out. So... Uh, Let's start with, and then there's a classic Chicago, uh, <laughs> heavy on the analysis, reporting, reporting story. I've done so many of these about mortgage uh, mortgages in Chicago. Uh, all right, let's start with a classic uh, neighborhood news story. Douglas Park, and this may be my favorite story of 2020 that you did. 
Uh, it's about, well, why don't you tell folks uh, what it's about? People who added the extra S to Douglas in Douglas Parks and totally changed absolutely everything symbolically about Douglas Park by just adding one extra S. Take it away, Linda. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to, you fill in the parts I'm leaving out. Um, but yeah, basically I, I get a call from, uh, or I got a, a tip or a line on a couple of vandals who had been, and this is just before the park is about to officially change the name of Douglas Park, who'd been named, named for Stephen Douglas, a uh, slaveholder. And for probably like for years, a number of years, a group of uh, kids at the Village Leadership Academy, private school, real, um, um, basically sort of include activism and social justice work as part of their curriculum um, among their students. And these kids had been pushing for several years to get the name of Stephen Douglas Park changed to Frederick Douglas Park. Um, and later they would push to get it changed to Frederick and Anna Douglas, right? Frederick Douglas's wife. So Douglas with one S to Douglas with two S. Super simple. All you need to do is add an S. You don't actually even need to change the name of the park, which is a, a storied park, a, you know, an important park on the west side uh, in an in a important African-American community that's been African-American since, you know, the 1960s. Um, and... You know, all you got to do is add the S, right? And the kids had been lobbying and lobbying. And there were news reports of these signs in the park actually being changed to have this additional S, but no one had ever reported on who who was that. Um, and I got a line on who that might have been and interviewed um, the two vandals, vandal number one and vandal number two. And they were terrific um, through the whole report. They told the story of what they were trying to do. They were trying to support the kids. But they also, um, you know, I guess one of my favorite parts of that story is, you know, they talked about, like, all the, the, the technical aspects of, like, the different ways they tried to do this. You know, they, they tried paper, and then they tried, like, I don't know, there was some special glue bond they figured out. And they actually ended up, uh, and then there was, like, a near bust, right, when the park maintenance guy is, like, coming along. So I encourage you to listen to the story. They tell it much better than I do. And, um, and it's hilarious. And... They um, they actually end up changing. Douglas Park is a very large park. They end up changing something like forty seven different signs, and then they maintain the signs as if they are the park district for the next year. Um, so it was a it's a lot of fun. I love stories like that about Chicagoans just like taking matters into their own hands in a way in a way that doesn't hurt people. Right? We're not trying to encourage anybody to hurt their neighbors here. But in a way that doesn't really hurt anybody, um, as far as I can tell, there was no one. Um, I actually, I didn't cover it the whole way through, so I should, you know, shouldn't say there was no one. But I don't remember a lot of strong opposition to changing the name of Douglas Park. Um, so, yeah, you know, they, well, they took matters into their own hands, got way ahead of the park district. The kids had been protesting for like years. They'd done so many testimonies at the the, the actual park district board and, you know, Everybody thanks them and then nothing happens.
Yeah, everybody thanks him and nothing happens. Uh, so as I started off by saying, uh, a, a really good neighborhood news story, uh, people, in my humble opinion, not only tells a story, in the case of these two, the story of uh, these two quote-unquote vandals, uh, but it also gives you a lesson about Chicago. Uh, and so when I consider uh, this particular story, I have two lessons in mind. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the lessons uh, that I uh, draw from them. Number one, is the uh, just ceaseless resistance that powerful people in the city of Chicago have to any kind of change that another powerful person didn't dictate to them. So in other words, because this didn't come from a mayor or from some clouded person, uh, they were going to not, the park district was not going to stick its neck out in any way. So they had those students protesting, pointing out, you've named a park in a black neighborhood for a slave owner. Okay, whoop, can't change that. Uh, <laughs> that's why it's hard for me not to stick my opinions in, Linda, when I see stupid stuff like that. I uh, can't know, cannot, must keep the slave owner's name because what would it be like if we just let any old citizen tell us what to do with our business? We, we cannot allow citizens. That is my takeaway from it. That's the lesson, one of the lessons I learned. Do you, what's your thoughts? Do you agree with that lesson I drew from it, or do you draw a different lesson? Go ahead. Um, no, I actually love the lessons that you, um, and I love your point about, yeah, the, to, to have a good neighbor news story, you need a story, you need characters, and you need some bigger takeaway. And I am always looking for that. Like, what is the bigger takeaway, or what's the bigger meaning? And this was just like, handed to you on a plate, you know, um, in terms of the story. So, yeah, like I said, I didn't cover the years of Park District fighting. I didn't get into why the Park District hadn't done anything up until the point I jumped in. Um, so I really, I'm sorry, Ben, I can't, I can't, I don't have any inside information on that. But, yeah, it's, it's on its face completely offensive to have a, a huge park and an important park, like culturally, right? Um, that park is like where many, many high schools have their reunions. I think like almost every West Side high school, it feels like, has a huge reunion in Douglas Park. This is going back like 40 years or 50 years. And those reunions are almost all African-American, right? You've got Farragut High School, I know, has their reunion there, Um I think, well, all you know, I mean, some of the charter schools have only been around for maybe 20 years, but, you know, they have all their reunions there, North Lawndale um, Charter School. Uh, you've got Manly High School right there. They have their reunions there at Douglas Park. So, yeah, what um, completely offensive to have the park be named after a slaveholder. Yeah. And I, why I, it took three years, I, I can't, I, I did, I Luckily, the the story did not take me in that direction. I don't spend too long, and you can see I don't really know now. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, uh, and the other uh, lesson I took from it uh, is that uh, in Chicago, the, it's often the troublemakers who are our greatest heroes. And this is me speaking. This is definitely something. This goes back uh, to everybody ever did any civil disobedience against the injustice in the city of Chicago. And so, yes, these uh, vandals were vandals. They defaced public property, and if they were caught, they could face the consequences for it. And yet, I would say uh, they were the heroes because it's so offensive, in my humble opinion. But that's another lesson I got. And often case in the city of Chicago, uh, it's the troublemakers 
who do the most good. What's your thoughts about that lesson? Well, I have actually thought um, back looking at history and in terms of how we cover the news, like how often it happens that the troublemakers of one era, you know, which we're encouraged to cover in a straight ahead way, right? And equal time and equal weight to ideas, but how often it happens that the troublemakers, you know, point of view comes to bear out and be what we broadly consider to be fair or just or um, basically in line with like human rights or or thinking. Um, so I, I've thought about that a lot. I thought about that a lot when I was um, covering, you know, 50 schools closing down predominantly African-American schools. Um, you know, you look back at what happened uh, when there were a lot of population sort of imbalances between schools and population when we had white flight. And, you know, there, um, I guess the kids who like paid for that, for, for white schools emptying out, were also the black kids, honestly, because the white kids' schools were not closed and they weren't consolidated. Um, instead, you know, black schools ran double shifts or, you know, they set up... Uh, uh, the famous Willis wagons, you know, sort of mobile classrooms outside of schools. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, I do think about those questions about troublemakers. And, you know, while we give equal weight and it's important to consider all kinds of points of view, I do think about how often it does feel like the troublemakers uh, in 20 or 30 or 40 years will feel like the people who are speaking truth. Well put. Uh, good trouble, they call it. I believe that's what John Lewis called it. Uh, and then, all right, this is a classic uh, Chicago reporter story. And their Chicago reporter is no longer in existence. But many, many years ago, the Chicago, I worked there. I got my start uh, at the Chicago reporter. It was really, a bit, uh, Linda talked about, uh, what research-driven uh, stories or reported stories is how she puts it. Uh, the reporter was reported, reported, just like statistics and facts that were arranged in such a way to point out a larger truth about Chicago. And this is such a quintessential Chicago reporter story. Uh, shout out to John McDermott, who created the Chicago Reporter Law past the 90s. Uh, mortgage lending, where banks don't lend. Uh, and Alden Lowry, who uh, worked with you on this story, uh, a Chicago reporter alum, banks loan 12 cents in Chicago's black neighborhoods for every $1 they lend in white neighborhoods for home mortgages. Wow, that's pretty deep. Uh, so, Linda, there's no, like, colorful take in this story. There's no, uh, like, uh, friendly voices in this story that, um, you know, are telling you something uh, interesting and funny and compelling about a Chicago neighborhood. This is just the reality of life in Chicago. Talk about what it took to uh, put this story together uh, and the lessons you drew from this story. Um, yeah, and I should definitely mention Andrew Fan, who's my co-writer on this story. Um, Andrew worked at the City Bureau at the time. And, um, you know, it was really, he had been a banker at, uh, at, Urban Partnership Bank, that is South Shore Bank, for people who remember South Shore Bank, and then Shore Bank, and then Urban Partnership Bank, I believe I'm getting that right. And he had done, he had put numbers together for the government to, um, that, that, that all banks are required to file 
that disclose, uh, you know, how much lending the bank is doing and in what communities and what the loan amounts are. And um, he had done this analysis. Um, and actually, I think it was a, a group of folks from City Bureau who had asked me to come out and speak about what it's, you know, what it's like to be a reporter. Uh, and I um, said, oh, I see you have a team of people that's looking at mortgage uh, mortgage lending. I'm kind of interested in mortgage lending. What, uh, what are you guys doing? And we connected up. So this analysis, um, you know, all credit to Andrew on the analysis and Alden, who is system, you know, Andrew ran it on as a wizard at data, um, you know, ran the, the entire analysis on a whole different CR. Uh, Alden ran it through uh, Excel and Access for people who care about how analyses are done, data, data-driven reporting. And we took seven years of data. We looked at every home mortgage loan in the city of Chicago that we looked both for single family and multi-unit buildings. So we looked at condos, we looked at giant, you know, courtyard multi-unit buildings in uh, places like Hyde Park or South Shore or up in Rogers Park. And um, we, we, we compared the money that was flowing into different neighborhoods by the race of the neighborhood, the majority race of the neighborhood. And yeah, what we found were the statistics you cited at the top. And uh, for every dollar that loan that banks were loaning in in our predominantly white neighborhoods, they were loaning twelve cents uh, in uh, in uh, African American neighborhoods, thirteen cents in Latino communities. And we showed too that um, some of our biggest banks. Uh, and we we actually wrote we actually printed the data bank by bank so you can see sort of our dozen largest home mortgage lenders in the city of Chicago bank by bank individually you can see what their disparity was and you know those disparities were gigantic for some of our biggest banks uh you know Chase Bank for instance lending 40 times more in white communities than uh than African American communities so the disparities, I, I think, I don't think anyone was surprised that we found disparity. I think what was surprising about this story was just the, 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 the gap, the the size of the disparity itself. Um, you know, actually, we found four communities, um, including uh, sort of Lakeview near North Side, four community areas that are predominantly white that actually attracted more lending than all of Chicago's black uh, neighborhoods combined. Um, and so that, that had an impact, you know, I think that level, that level of disparity and quantifying it that way and having seven years of data and looking at actually the entire universe, you know, not leaving anything out. I think that had a, a big impact on people and, um, we saw folks protest out of it. We saw banks uh, make a lot of promises out of it um, that probably had to do with uh, the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the uh, racial justice protests were going on at the same time. You had um, George Floyd actually killed just um, just a short time before this this story came out. But it was a way for people to, to point to structural racism. Um, and to me, it's one of the most clear um, examples of, of structural racism. Um, so, yeah, that's some of what the, the, the stories dug up. 
Um, you had, again, you had folks protest out of it. You had changes at city council. You had hearings at the state level out of this reporting. So it's very, it was a big honor to be able to report something that I think has been useful to communities. Uh, a couple thoughts I have, a couple lessons I have. Uh, <laughs> not, I think the lessons I would draw would not make it to WBZ, but let's uh, try them out anyway. Uh, the first lesson I uh, draw from reading this story uh, is the uh, limits of free market capitalism. And uh, so we are a capitalist country. We're told that all the time. And I uh, engage lively debates and discussions, my friends of the libertarian persuasion, uh, who are always telling me uh, how wrong I am and misguided I am uh, for my Bernie Sanders view, New Deal view of the world. That's where I come from. Uh, and then so <laughs> uh, they always say, you got to let the market be the market, Ben. Okay? They've got to have liberty be liberty. And I'm like, well, what do you say about what Alden Lowry and Linda Lutton uh, discovered when they just looked into uh, free markets being free. And free markets aren't so free if you're black. You get what I'm saying, Linda Lutton? So uh, that is kind of like one of the main lessons that I, would, uh, I drew from yours is that if you just let uh, people, uh, bankers or mortgage lenders or anybody in the business world just do whatever they want to do, then a lot of people are going to get screwed. Uh, and this is just one example of it. That is a lesson I drew uh, from your uh, reporting. Uh, what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think um, actually one of the strongest quotes in there was talking to Nidra Sims Fears of the Greater Chatham Initiative. And, you know, that was almost, you're almost paraphrasing one of her quotes. She's like, the market has never worked in African-American communities, um, not in this, not in, not in, in terms of housing. Um, so you, you know, you certainly see that. Um, and just, you know, we tried to point out too, you have homes that, you know, people essentially want to invest in their communities, right? They want to purchase or they want to improve their homes and just are completely unable to get mortgages. And you have banks chasing um, and just falling over themselves to invest in um, areas where they can make a lot of profit, where the risk is lower for them. And there's nothing that obligates them to, to take uh, more of a risk um, anywhere else. Um, so we had a lot of promises come out of the, um, of, out of this reporting and, and, and I, you know, think fairly more broadly, you had a lot of promises from, from banks actually coming out of the, the, um, protests that happened in the summer of 2020 in particular, almost every major bank was making promises about, um, investing in African-American communities and in communities that they had, um, neglected, up to now, there's there's also been lots of promises about hiring folks and having folks in leadership in banks that that come from communities. Those um, African Americans have been, um, I think, by the by the banking industry's own admission, really sorely underrepresented. Um, so you heard a lot of promises. It'll be up to journalists to um, you know to follow on that and figure out whether. You know, this data comes out, it's public data. Everything we used for this analysis was already just sitting right there. It was just a question of us, um, somebody, and, and the credit goes to Andrew Fan on this, coming up with this um, in this way. And looking at it from a community perspective, 
Um, so it'll be up to us to, to see what the banks do now, um, now that they've made the promises. One other thing yeah. that really makes this a reporter's story, I think, Ben, is that, you know, a lot of analyses up to now kind of look at like um, borrowers. It's a borrower, anal- a borrower level analysis. So it's kind of like, oh, the individual, which is always, that's also like a very American sort of capitalistic way to look at things, right? But this analysis looked at money overall money coming into neighborhoods by the race of the neighborhood and it showed how entire communities are basically just there's no lending there's no lending i mean in chatham we documented that in chatham chase bank was on average making three home loans per year in chatham one of our historic middle class neighborhoods and you've got our biggest bank making three loans in a giant community area. I mean, I think we took something like, I'm not going to say the numbers exactly, but it was something like, you know, a combination of like three other very large banks making like a total of six loans over, you know, on average over a number of years. It was just astounding, really, how little banks are lending. And and all that matters, like you might think, oh, home loans, what does that really matter if I don't, you know, maybe I'm a renter, but this is really like the, a critical way that money comes into neighborhoods. It's how you, you basically attract commercial investment through residential investment first. Businesses are always saying they want to see a critical mass of people living in a neighborhood. You know, they don't want to go to neighborhoods that are full of vacant lots. And in African-American communities, you have people trying to invest. You have people wanting to put their money in they want to purchase homes and you have the banks saying, we don't think it's actually worth it. We're not going to give you a loan. Oh, it's, it's absolutely critical. It's, it's just that the fundamental basics of, again, our capitalist system, you own your home. If you want to participate in capitalism, if you want to be a part of the larger system that we in the United States say is the greatest system in America, you should not be blocked out of the market. It should be a free market. Uh, I'm with you 100%. This is a very important story. And that's something else that I lo- journalism students can really learn from this story on this level. Because when you you had all these reporters, three reporters, taking this deep dive, the computer's whirring, they got the situation, they got the facts. So you turn the facts over to the banks. And Linda, I had a smile when I was reading this. Instead of the banks going, you're absolutely correct. There's so much prejudice out here in the banking world. You wouldn't believe, uh, Linda Lutton, what people say, white, white, what white bankers say about black people when they're not around. Instead of being openly freaking honest about the world that exists, uh, what do they do? They go, well, <clears throat> technically, I don't agree with your findings because uh, the, more, the, the loans in the Lincoln Park are more. They're higher because the property is uh, worth more. So therefore, there's more money uh, going to Lincoln Park than Chatham. They, in other words, they just made some thing up. And then Linda or Alden or uh, Andrew, I don't know who uh, came back with the, the follow-up. Uh, well, we also saw there were more actual loans uh, in Lincoln Park than Chatham. So just stop. But see, Linda, they also did that. Um, uh, they talked about refinancing. Well, you're not calculating refinancing. In other words, instead of acknowledging that, yeah, they screwed up, they try to make it look like you, the reporter. <laughs> I'm laughing because this is so classic Chicago. And City Hall does it. You, the reporter. Lori Life was doing this to Gregory Pratt all the time. God bless you, Gregory Pratt. You know, 
You, the reporter, screwed up. No, 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 no. Don't play games. But you got to learn, right, Linda? You got to learn when you get that counter. Uh, they, you throw the curveball. You throw the curveball at them, and then they throw something back at you. You got to learn to be quick on your feet, correct? Yeah, you do. You got to cover all your bases. And honestly, you know, we had covered a lot of those bases just because we wanted to understand what are the different ways we can look at this and what are the ways that other reporters have looked at it in the past. Um, you know, one of the ways we had calls after this came out, we had calls from a lot of other um, places around the country, actually, reporters wanting to do this analysis. And I'll tell you, here's another Chicago reality sort of takeaway from this analysis that I had. Um, Honestly, about 80% of our census tracts in the city of Chicago fall into a situation where you can say whether they're predominantly white, black, or Latino. And you can only do this analysis that we did in a very, in a kind of a hyper-segregated place. And, um, you know, that, that was possible here in Chicago. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, we, we did look at a bunch of different answers and we looked we cut this data every which way you could cut it um and yeah that we had foreseen some of the comments from banks um you know but we went to them at the at the end uh and presented every bank saw its own um every for for each bank for which we published data we you know presented that data to the bank yeah and by the way uh uh, just a little side, uh, interesting little uh, side to this story. Uh, Mr. Cub, the legendary great Ernie Banks, his home that he used to live in Chatham, uh, he lived in Chatham, even though he worked on the north side, because back in those days, that Chatham was probably the only place a middle-class black guy like Ernie Banks or the Chicago Cubs could buy property, just saying, Chicago. Uh, his his home uh, was undervalued uh, by bankers, and as a result, it was a deterrence to uh, a homeowner improving it. So... Great story. Uh, all three reporters take a bow, uh, and Linda Lutton, you too, take a bow. Uh, all right, let's close with your latest, uh, your momentary uh, a farewell song. It's only momentary, ladies and gentlemen. She'll be back next year. Uh, and uh, I love this story, The Pirate, The Radio Pirate. Uh, I wish, I, I'm thinking if, thi if this podcasting thing doesn't work out, uh, I'm going to become a radio pirate, man. I'm going to, Dennis, Dr. D, and D DJ Nate are going to teach me how to <laughs> sneak on. So tell folks about the radio pirate. This guy sounds like my kind of guy. Oh, yeah. You definitely, you got to tune in for people who live on the north side. I'm saying roughly, roughly, because it kind of depends how high up your apartment is or, you know, how good your car radio is. But let's go just roughly. I'm pretty sure you can tune into 87.9. FM, and that would be anywhere from maybe like Pulaski on the west, well, pretty far east, honestly. He claims you can um, hear this, his station way up in the uh, high rises along the lakefront, you know, so again, depending on how high you are, um, all the way up to, I could still get it in my car up to Devon and south, uh, south to maybe Addison, because he mentions uh, Lean Tech, and I could get it up to, to Addison. So, yeah, if you live in that little sweet spot, you can pick up on the 87.9 on your radio dial, a uh, former sort of computer audio engineer nerd type uh, has been running a pirate radio station for the past 15 years, and he broadcasts 
audio, what he calls audio noir. He loves film noir. This is audio noir. They're old audio dramas. You can actually tune, you, you don't have to live in this area, but you can just tune in to audionoir.com. So this is where, to me, this is where you really got into the, you know, the Chicago, um, you got to love Chicago and you got to love people who do this. You know, he had this streaming station up. That's what he did first is, you know, he's an insomniac and these audio dramas, they help him go to sleep. It's distracting enough for him to forget about his problems, but it's not so compelling that he wants to necessarily hear the end. You kind of know how it's going to work out, right? The cop gets the bad guys. Um, so he starts, he thinks, oh, if this helps me, maybe I can, uh, you know, start a streaming station and I can help other people. They can tune into this audio noir. So he does that. And a couple of months later, he says, well, he, he's just going to start illegally broadcasting this stuff to his neighbors the same stuff he's already putting online um so you know we asked him why did you do this why illegally broadcast you know why actually risk a fine from the federal communications commission who takes this stuff fairly seriously and he says you know in beautiful audio dry dry humor i can't even actually tell if it's humor or not he just says i had the equipment i figured why not transmit this, you know, why not? So there you have it. 15 years of illegal broadcasting happening right here on Chicago's North side. Um, he's a great character. He's funny in a dry humored way. We're only calling him bill because he says he does really fear FCC prison. Um, but definitely take advantage and listen to some of this uh, pirate broadcast. And I actually, I have to say, Ben, like this, a lot of this doesn't show up in the, um, in the audio story, but there'll be an online story. And I learned a ton about pirate radio and actually how, what an active scene uh, some other cities have, especially New York. I talked to an independent producer there, David Gorn, who's been um, cataloging, mapping, researching all kinds of pirate radio. And he says any given day, just in one borough, just in Brooklyn, you have between 25 and 30 pirate stations up and running oftentimes targeted toward immigrant you know you've got folks broadcasting in 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 Haitian Creole um in Hebrew you've got a lot actually some are uh, lots of different religions represented um so really interesting story and I thought a fitting story I really appreciated doing a radio story for my my last uh radio story on the way out the door before my my DIY sabbatical yes uh uh, temporarily on her way out the door. Uh, I, if uh, I, if you could throw it out to Bill, he's always welcome to come on my a humble little podcast. I'll keep his anonymity. I would love to interview this guy. And uh, now, what lesson, larger lesson about Chicago, uh, can be drawn from this story? Well, one obvious lesson, if you contrast the story of the bankers to Bill, is that Bill lives in fear of getting thrown into jail for doing something that hurts absolutely no one, okay? Whereas the bankers... <laughs> Well, what you don't understand is that uh, property is more expensive in Lincoln Park. You know, they got some explanation. They'll never go to jail, uh, Linda. So that's one lesson uh, that I might draw from it. Any lessons that you would draw from this tale? 
Um, well, I love, like I have, you know, look, I'm married to an artist and there's, and there's part of me that loves the DIY stuff. And I think this kind of falls in the same category as the, you know, the vandals putting up the S's on the end of the sign there. You know, this guy thinks Chicago would be a better place with a little more radio and things that mixed it up a little bit more. And, um, you know, he, he's into kind of art and experimental like transmissions and that's all it's old its own weird genre. But yeah, I think um I think there's a lesson there about Chicagoans just making the Chicago that they that they'd like to see. And um, you know, that's that's an inspiring thing. And he's just he's he's like so into his own thing. I mean, his porch, which is kind of like a it's an it's not a not an actual outdoor porch anymore. It's been, you know, integrated in but it's um you know, I was like, wow, it's like a radio shack up in here. You know, he's got it's a very neat radio shack. He has everything actually that a radio shack has. Um, he builds speakers and amplifiers in addition to running this uh, radio station. And he's just um, he's a quirky guy that's just doing something weird and cool that he's so into. And it's fun to meet those people and it's fun to talk to those people. And that's you know, it's what makes reporting so fun is just meeting people who are doing all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, trying to make the world a little bit more how they would like to like to see it, you know? That's well put. Yeah, that is a great lesson uh, to learn from it. Uh, Chicago uh, has a tradition, a reputation for being a city full of squares, but it's those subversive minds underneath that I just have always been attracted to, too, in the city of Chicago. And there's something about this repressive town uh, that uh, stamps out anybody who dares to disagree that just kind of breeds really creative people who are, like, underground, if you follow what I'm saying, Linda. Uh, so, uh, all right, Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show and the great work that you've done at WBEZ. And uh, Linda, best of luck to you. And uh, when you return from your sabbatical, I'll have you back on and you talk about what you learned from your sabbatical. So there you go. That's your return engagement. Let's hope I'm still, we're all still alive and prospering uh, in America uh, a year from now. So uh, thank you very much, Linda. Hey, thank you, Ben. Thank you. All right, that's great, Linda Lutton. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye.